Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Teacher Renewed Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Palmas. I am a wife, mom, author, and lifelong educator who has been doing some hard work for two decades. This podcast is about renewing hope, happiness, and belief in education. We get real and talk candidly about ways educators across the globe are working to uproot the education system and making transformational changes for all educators and students. And beyond the why and the what these transformational education leaders are doing, we get into the how you as an educator can drive toward these changes. I am here to take away the pain, exhaustion that too many of us feel day in and day out and rid ourselves of the question if we made the right career choice. Trust me, you did. So let's dig in and ignite the joy, passion, and belief all educators had when deciding to enter a career in education. And let's make some change. So much is possible in education. Welcome back to the Teacher Renewed Podcast. Once again, in the spirit of humility and gratitude. We have an amazing guest in our presence today. His name is Kwame Sarfo Mensa, and he is an educator, a liberator, a leader, and also has his own business. It's called Identity Talk Consulting, as well as his own podcast, Identity Talk for Educators Live. And if you haven't listened to it, you need to. Kwame is another individual I found on Instagram. That is my theme for all all great guests on this podcast. As I think I might have hashtag education liberation. I'm not sure what I had hashtag, but then I stumbled upon Kwame. And once again, my soul and spirit were opened up to what is possible in education and why education and race and equity all of these foundational things can be true when phenomenal leaders are doing this work alongside people to help better educate how we are going about education. And hopefully all of that just makes sense. I'm just speaking from my heart because I am in the presence of somebody who is just doing phenomenal work through the lens of identity. And knowing that identity is so critical to how we move education forward, we as educators, the affirmation of our students. And so Kwame, I just, I give you the floor very humbly, like I said, with immense gratitude to say welcome and share with us who you are. And I'm sure there's going to be some talk of identity, but I would love to hear your journey in education and what's brought you to doing the work that you do today. Kelly, first off, thank you so much for having me on this platform. And if you keep on giving intros like that, I might have to take you on a road to just be my hype person, for real. (laughs) I'm just humbled to be in your presence as well. And I also appreciate the work that you're doing and empowering educators and just providing them with a different lens as it pertains to just race and culture and just equity in general. But to answer your question, I am Kwame Sarfamensa. I'm a first-generation immigrant, so both of my parents came from Ghana, West Africa, moved to the United States after high school in the early 60s, late 70s, started a life here. My mother was in school for nursing. My father would go on to finish with an MBA in business and finance and would go on to become an actuary, and both of them end up having three of us together. But there's four of us total, so I have 
another sister on my dad's side who's the oldest. I grew up as the middle child, but I'm actually the third of four uh, students, four children total on my dad's side. And as far as just education and how it's shown up in my life, education has always been something that both my parents have imparted to me since I was little. I started off my own schooling as a student in a self-contained special education classroom. So I actually had an IEP mm. during my first four years of K-12 schooling. And it was around speech articulation, speech expression. So I was the student who knew what I wanted to stay in my head, but it never came out coherently. So sometimes I would use compensatory strategies such as drawing pictures as a way to not have to talk to people. I would communicate by doing other nonverbal actions just as a way to compensate. But over time, I started to develop my speech skills. One of the things I can remember doing was reading books to my sister, my younger sister, and getting paid for it. That was a way for me to build on my reading skills, but also my vocabulary. I can remember my mom going to my IP meetings and telling the teachers in the special ed department how they should be providing interventions to me, how they should be supporting me in school. Because what happened back then was the teachers were so impressed with what my mom was doing that they started to ask her questions on what she was doing at home to expedite my growth in school. And that's not something that happens pretty often, particularly when you talk about a lot of historically marginalized students and their families. You don't usually see that reverse happening. So for my mom to be in that position where she was providing those interventions and expediting my growth significantly, that was empowering for me especially when I decided to become an educator. But just fast forwarding to my college days, I started working with kids as a work-study job, as a middle school, no, actually as an after-school tutor at a YMCA close to my alma mater, Temple University of Philadelphia. And it was just something that was going to give me some pocket money so I could go to the movies, maybe get a slice of pizza, things that college kids do to survive. I didn't think of it as this is going to be a stepping stone towards a bigger career. It was just me having a love for children and me wanting to give back any way I could. And it started off at the YMCA, being an after-school tutor and mentor. And then I ultimately started working as a summer camp counselor over there. And then upon finishing my undergrad, I then joined a, a, an AmeriCorps program called Education Works, which is the equivalent of city year, but it's school-based. So for a year and a half, I was working as a core member at one of the schools in the school district of Philadelphia, which is close to Temple. And they had me doing all kinds of things. I was assisting teachers. I was doing lunch duty. I was on recess duty every day. And then on top of that, I was 
one of the coordinators for an after-school program. So I was actually one of the people in after-school program with the kids every day. So I ended up working 10-hour days, Kelly, every day. So you talk about that, 50 hours a week. It's an AmeriCorps program, so you're getting just a stipend. So for those who are familiar with AmeriCorps and how it works, any AmeriCorps program you do, whether you're talking Peace Corps, whether you're talking City Year, right? You're only getting a stipend. And at that time, it was just over $200 bi-weekly. Bi-weekly. Bi-weekly, $200 was the stipend I was getting paid. So if you do the quick math, that's $400 a month times that by 12. Now you're only talking $4,800 for a year. 50-hour okay. Yeah. 50-hour weeks. Working full-time, and I only getting $4,800. So obviously, I should have been getting, I should have been technically on welfare based on that. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how low the pay was. But I was so passionate about the work that it didn't matter to me. I was just happy to be in a space where I was doing something that gave me purpose. Mm -hmm. It gave me a drive to want to keep on coming back. And during that time, I really started to see the inequities. The fact that I was in a predominantly Black and Latinx school, where 90% of the school body represented those identities, but then the faculty was about 90% Caucasian or white. Right there, That was a red flag for me. And I didn't know why that was the case. I just knew that I saw certain teachers teaching. And I said to myself, if I ever get up there, it's going to be a totally different experience that the kid will get as far as learning. I felt like at that time, I could teach better than some of the teachers that the students had because I knew I cared about them. I knew that I could connect with them in ways that some of these other teachers weren't able to connect because of either cultural differences or socioeconomical differences, whatever the case may be. But I started to see those nuances early on and I just took note of it and said, this is what I wanna do. I wanna be a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school, got my master's degree, Eventually got my initial teacher's license and I started teaching in Philadelphia. My first four years of teaching was as a sixth grade math teacher in Philly at two different charter schools. And then eventually I moved to Boston, Massachusetts and taught there for five more years as a seventh, eighth grade math teacher within the Boston public schools system. And in 2019, I resigned from my position in Boston Public Schools and moved abroad with my entire family because my wife, she is a Peace Corps director. Oh, wow. So part of that job requires you to travel or live abroad a certain number of years. So we started off in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and now we currently live in Freetown, Sierra Leone. And yeah, and it's been... And it's been a a transition, quite a transition. And I think we'll get deeper into that as we move forward the conversation. But after I resigned from my position, it was tough because I had been working in schools for 15 years straight. 
as an assistant teacher and then eventually becoming a lead teacher in the classroom. So I knew every August I'll be returning to school to do some PD to start the year. And then September, all the kids will come back. That was my norm for 15 straight years. So to go from that to now not having that routine, that structure, not having to do a lesson plan, not having to grade papers, not having to call parents to update them on student progress, not having to set up conferences with parents and sit in meetings with teachers. To, to not have to do that was weird for me, and it brought a great level of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, so there were, there's a lot there, and that's how I started Day Talk Consulting and all these other things that you now see on Instagram and across all my other social media platforms, but it really started with me resigning from my position. Look, we're sad to know that your presence is not graced within the confines of a school, but it has obviously also then given opportunity to expand your impact. It sounds like you have a very service-oriented family, so thank you for all the work that you and your partner do. And let's then talk about how Identity Talks and Identity for Educator Talks Lives was formed out of what you learned in those 15 years. It's so funny because it started with me writing the book. So January 2018, I decided that I was going to write a book. I was on paternity leave. My son had just been born. He's now about to be five next month. And I said, I have three months of paternity leave that I can use to do whatever I need to do. So I said, all right, with all this time, I need to find a way to make use of the time that I have when I'm not changing diapers and waking up in the middle of the night. So I decided to write a book and it was called Shaping the Teacher Identity, Eight Lessons That Help to Find a Teacher in You. I finished writing the manuscript during that time. Then by the time I returned to school, it was really just a matter of editing and formatting and doing those its tasks. So I eventually published the book uh, December of that year, 2018. And I thought, I'm done. I've written the book. I'm straight. I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> because I was a math major in college. I've always been a math person. Not that I didn't like literacy, reading or writing, but math has always been my jam. So... Being in a position where I, a former student with an IEP in speech expression, was writing a book was an accomplishment in itself. Personal feat for me. But then a friend of mine who was also an author said, you know, well, Kwame, everybody reads books. So you have to figure out different ways to disseminate this great information you have in this book. Because this is some good information. So then I thought I could create a PD series based on the content of the book. So that's what led me to start doing workshops and uh, seminars with nearby school districts. So I started to do that. So I just decided, all right, I'm going to just start having conversations with teachers across the globe and interview those for about an hour. And it was just like what we're doing right now, just a really simple Zoom setup. 
hey, come on down, just share what your story is as a teacher. And now I've been doing this for the past two and a half years. I'm about 120 plus episodes in. And I've had a chance to interview so many incredible people along the way. But what's funny is through the podcast, I've been able to organize a virtual conference, which I did last year. I've been able to do workshops to help out other educators. Just by having this platform in general, I've been able to even get a book deal with a major publisher. And I'm currently writing a book right now, which hopefully will be out sometime next year. That's really what it came down to. Now, could I have foreseen in July, 2019, all the stuff that's happened as far as COVID-19, the remote learning phase, even all the anti-CRT rhetoric, the ban of books, all these things that have happened since I've been gone. I could not foreseen that. So to be watching all this happen and seeing the negative impact that it's had on so many of my teaching colleagues, it left me with a lot of guilt because I fell for them. I, I was them. I was in the trenches just like they were. But now I'm not in those trenches anymore. So there was some guilt there. But then I realized that, but it also gave me perspective. So that's kind of the framework of the business and how it started. But at the heart of it is identity. And when you define identity and when you think about education, and I think one of your quotes is staying true to the teacher in you. Yes, it is. Talk us through what this means like identity talk is what you do and so at the heart is identity work what does that mean for educators and kelly i mean you all people can relate to this being in the trenches being a school leader being in the classroom you know that the way that we go about teaching is different Everybody has their own swag, their own style of teaching, their own way of doing things. And we all come into this education space for different reasons. Although the common denominator may be to impact students and have a love for students, we all got into the space because of different motivations. Or should I say different sources of motivation? And in my case, I got into the space because I didn't notice that there were very few Black men teaching in front of students who look like them. That was my main motivation for wanting to be an educator. In your case, it's a different reason. But the common denominator is that we have a love for children. We have a love for service. So when I talk about identity talk, it is about staying true to the teacher and you. It's about authenticity staying true to your principles, staying aligned to your foundation as an educator so that you can continue to do the work necessary for students. That means seeing that there's injustices taking place within your school system, but not buckling or cowering to the pressure because you may not get a paycheck. And I know that's easier said than done, but that's really the essence of what identity talk, just being true to who you are and understanding that your integrity trumps everything that's happening. Yeah, 
They're banning books. But guess what? I'm going to find a way for my babies to get these books. Yes, they're saying we shouldn't be talking about race. We shouldn't be talking about the history of marginalized, historically marginalized people, whether we're talking about LGBTQ plus communities, whether we're talking about Black, Indigenous, Asian Pacific Islander, Latinx people. But guess what? These are the people who are in front of us. And they need to have a positive sense of who they are through their history and not what we give them in this whitewash fashion. That's a responsibility that we have to carry, given the multicultural settings that we find ourselves in in the classroom. So it is so much about understanding just, and here's where the talk comes in. So often as educators, we tell ourselves that we're reflective practitioners. I'm sure you've heard that saying so many times. As educators, we're reflective practitioners. We go through the instructional day, we get home, and we reflect on our practice. But when we talk about reflection, we all, more times than not, is grounded within our instructional practice, our pedagogical practice. Not so much about looking at things through the lens of our identities, through the lens of intersectionality, right? That's the work that we have to do. So when we talk about critical race theory and why there's so much opposition, particularly from whether we, whether we want to go, it's not just as simple as saying, oh, it's just the right-wingers and the conservatives that don't like critical race theory. You have some people on the left, too, that aren't too crazy about it, neither, right? Not so black and white. But the fact that there's all this opposition about helping students build a positive sense of self about who they are and understanding that because of who they are, because of their lack of privilege, because of their positionality within this white dominant cultural framework, they may be in positions where they don't have access to certain courses, certain facilities, certain capital. Our students need to be aware of that if they're going to be living in a society like this. They must be aware. And it's a gross injustice for us not to make them aware of what's happening. And that's not indoctrination. I know I'm starting to get a little preachy here, but this is the stuff that gets me hot right here. This is not indoctrination. Indoctrination is when you refuse to tell students the truth about what's really happened in the history of this country. Indoctrination is having students who are from historically marginalized neighborhoods stand up for a pledge that contradicts what they see on TV. How are we, how are we all one people when yet I see people who look like me getting killed by cops. You see what I'm saying? How can I be in alignment with the content of that pledge when I see these gross injustices happening time and time again? How can an indigenous person, regardless of what tribe they're from, regardless of what nation they're from, be proud of being American when they see that their land, their unceded land has been stolen, people are still capitalizing off of that land. There's so much going on. And you know what's, you know, 
what's crazy is that I didn't start to really think about these things until I got out of the classroom, Kelly, because I had the space, the headspace to finally think about these things and reflect. Because when we're in the trenches, it's always go. We go, we're in the school for eight, nine, 10, 11 hours a day. We get home. We probably have a whole stack of papers to grade. We probably have to call parents. We're eating dinner as we're grading papers and putting them inside our systems. By the time we get through everything, it's probably 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night, sometimes later. We're now starting to wind down and get to bed, only to start the day up again at 4 o'clock in the morning, just to get to school at 5.30 in the morning so you can beat your colleagues to the copy machine and make copy for all of your students. <laughs> what I'm saying is real. Any teacher who's listening to me knows I am not lying. There is no cap in what I'm saying. This is real talk. It's real talk. So to now, to not be in that position and to have the space that used to be preoccupied by all those things I mentioned, to now think about some of the ways in which I've harmed students subconsciously because of my lack of awareness around some of the privileges that I have, my own positionality as an educator of students, and even the power that I have access to. Now think about those things in that framework. It's really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I now see. Some of the some of the behaviors that our students exhibit, some of the power trips that we see from administrators at times, even classroom teachers, the fact that parents feel as though they can't be active contributors or be the stakeholders that we always say they are. We always say that parents are the most important stakeholders, but do we make them feel like they are all the time is the question. It all goes back to that. Or even the fact that even though I'm a black man, and yes, I could talk about the fact that my ancestors have experienced racism and everything, but guess what? I'm a cisgender heterosexual black man. Because of, the, because of those two markers, I have privileges and protections that maybe a black trans person doesn't have or a black queer person doesn't have. That's real. There's levels to this. It's not, it's not black and white. It's not this binary way of thinking where it's good, bad, black, white. Like, no, there's nuance to all these conversations that we're having, but you can't get to that understanding if you don't read, if you don't give yourself time to process and reflect on how all this applies to your own practice, to your own way of seeing the world. And so that, Everything you're saying is just resonating. And it makes me think too, I pulled out of the classroom in my seventh year of teaching and had joined an organization that was talking a lot about our identities and was like, Kelly, hold up a mirror. You are a white woman teaching black children. What does this really mean? And I know deep down, I knew something, right? Like I wouldn't have been in the communities in which I was teaching if I didn't know something, but I wasn't holding the mirror up to the way in which I needed to be like, oh, here are my privileges that I'm afforded. Here are the white 
very dominant ways in which I'm educating children because this is what I know. And so I was thinking about these things, but when I was in the classroom, not nearly to the extent to your point, and now that you've been able to pull yourself out, yet we're losing teachers right and left because they don't have this time to be reflective practitioners and putting that in quotes because they are burned out. How do we live in a balance and do this work really powerfully and wonderfully and also still acknowledge our students' identity and reflect on our own? What advice do you have? Oh, it's a great question and also a big one. There's so many ways that could be answered. I think the first thing is in order to have sustainability in this work, you have to set personal boundaries for yourself. You have to understand that you as an individual cannot solve all the problems. That's how the saviorism comes in. You can't do it all. You have to lean on people who may be in a better position to do it sometimes. And that's why it's important for us to work as a collective, be in community with people who are like-minded, who are aligned, with the same principles as you are. And it doesn't have to be a huge community at first. It could be just a small inner circle that could potentially expand to include more people. But that's where you have to be. You have to find your community who you can lean on when you know that you don't have the strength to do it one day. And you can go to this person and say, listen, I don't have, I don't have it today. I'm going to need to lean on you to carry me today. And then I got you the next day. We need that. And I look at, I look back at my own journey and why it was so hard for me at times. And I realized that there were people around me who just didn't think like me. And I was working so hard to convince them to act like me, to care as much as I did to be as invested as I did, to put in the same amount of hours as I did. Because that's how invested I was in my students. And I thought that if you weren't putting in that same amount of effort, if you weren't giving students that same amount of care, that just couldn't be aligned with you. And that always ate at me because I always felt like I was alone in this work. But by being away from the work and by connecting with different people through my podcast, just through other engagements, I realized that there are a lot more people like me out there who are doing this work in different ways. And I can lean on them for counsel. I can lean on them for advice. If I want to collaborate with them on a particular consultancy project, I can do that. And I think that's what's fun about being out of the classroom is that we can sit here as two educators who are formerly in the classroom and have a conversation like this and really build that rapport. And I think COVID has really forced us to do more of this cross-national conversation, if you will, (laughs) at least in our case. So I think that's been the beauty of it, just the power of community and how that can be a game changer, especially now. I don't know if you noticed, but that brought tears to my eyes. And it's just making me reflect on how I have been able to. I've had my ebbs and flows, and I'm sure most teachers have, and what I left the classroom. But what 
has kept me in education is that community. I've married an educator. Our best friends are educators. Like we, I, I don't know what I'd probably be like a Starbucks barista if I didn't have that community because I was so burned by probably the savior complex that I needed to get over. And I think that was a big part of the identity realization too. This is not missionary work. Education isn't. And I think as a white woman going into communities that have been historically marginalized, it probably started that way. And I've had to really look at myself and say, there is so much brilliance and genius that exists within these communities that have been marginalized. And this is not about me uplifting the community. It's me coming in and working alongside, being uplifted by the community. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on how do we ensure that, yes, to your point, the common denominators are for children or wanting to make a difference, but how do we flip the script on this not being saviorist work? These are very good questions. These are necessary questions. So I want to make sure that I give these questions justice. Uh, so as far as flipping the switch and getting people to see that we have to see that we have to go beyond the saviorism, right? I think first off, we have to understand that when we do this work, it's about doing it in the best interest of the children we're serving. If we're doing something that is not in their best interest, then we shouldn't do it. No matter how strongly we feel about it, no matter how much it makes us feel good, if that's not what the students need, if that's not what they're looking for, we just shouldn't do it. So for anyone who's familiar with Dr. Timo Kuhn's white supremacy culture characteristics, there's about 15 or 16 of them. She's actually updated them since then. But there's one thing called we call paternalism. White saviorism is a prime example of paternalism because we're making the assumption based on our bias that our historically marginalized students are helpless, particularly our black and brown students. They're helpless. They're not too smart. So we need to do more. We need to help them. We need to save them. So we end up doing things without consulting with them or asking them, what do y'all really need from me? Hey, how can I support you? How can I make your day a little bit easier? But we assume that this is what they need based on our bias. But then we get upset when they reject the support or service that we provide because they're like, no, we didn't ask for this. We need this. <laughs> so part of it is stripping our egos. We all have ego. We all believe that we have the ability to make a difference. But sometimes we can be in over our heads. And we have to be able to check ourselves when we see ourselves going down that road. So humility is very important. Humility is an important trait to have, especially when you're doing anti-racist work. You have to know when you're wrong. And not, only, and not only identifying when you're wrong, but knowing how to properly respond to that wrong. If you're harming a student or a colleague, 
in a way that could be offensive, whether it's racially or culturally, you have to figure out a way to repair that harm with that student, with that colleague in a way that's sensitive to their feelings. So it's a humility, it's empathy, and it's reminding yourself that this work is about them. It's not about how you feel. It's about how the students feel at the end of the day. So hopefully that answers your question. Powerful. Thank you so much. Speaking of humility, I know you have a very humbling story to share about your experience as a lead teacher. And I would love if you would be so vulnerable to share that and maybe share some of the lessons you learned and perhaps if it had helped in building your business. But yeah, share with us about that first year lead teacher and the lessons you learned in that and as it relates to your identity now. Sure. And a lot of these I share in my book, Shaping the Teacher Identity. But one thing that I've come to realize is that you have to, uh, sometimes the best learning you can receive is just being in the trenches, being thrown in the trenches, even though you don't feel like you're ready to be in those trenches. And that was an experience I had as an assistant, as a teaching assistant. I was working at a charter school in Philadelphia and I had just started my master's program. And there was this one fourth grade class that had major teacher turnover. I think by the time we had reached maybe December, they had already been through five different teachers. As a result, the principal called me in and said, hey, we need you to be a long-term sub for the next month. And I didn't want to do it because I was a fifth grade teaching assistant at the time. And I just enjoyed being with my fifth graders. I was comfortable. Like that was my safe spot. And I was like resistant at first, but then eventually they said, we really need you to be in here. I know you don't feel like you're ready. And I wasn't ready. I didn't feel like I was ready. I was still learning how to be a teacher. I didn't have the tools I had in my box. That I have now. I didn't it for the month and literally I just looked around the room and I saw chaos. I saw reflections of a classroom culture that was very negative and just very uninspiring. So naturally I thought, okay, we need to make this classroom a home for students. How can I make this classroom feel more like a home? So I started by just putting posters and pictures up. Now keep in mind, I was only getting paid $15 an hour, no medical benefits. Meaning if I miss the day of work, I don't get paid. Just to put some perspective on this. So this is just me being passionate, being overzealous probably wanted to just make this space a better one for students and just doing the, doing the best way I knew how. So of course I had pictures up. I started you know, doing some guided reading groups and just doing some little things just to build a classroom culture. Just get kids to feel good about themselves. It wasn't even so much about the academics. It was more about what can we do to just keep the ship afloat until the next person comes in to take over. 
I just wanted to make sure that we can get through the month without any major incidents. And that experience taught me so much about myself and what was possible. I was able to get through that month successfully and with students feeling really good about their experience with me to the point where students want me to stay for the rest of the year as a teacher. And I said, oh, no, I'm not ready for that. But guess what? I'm still around if y'all want to continue to deal with me. I'll still be around the school. So I'm just a few doors away. But just being in a space where I felt my impact really boosted my confidence moving forward because I knew that once it was time for me to get my own class, that I'll be okay. And that was a major litmus test for me. So I think the advice that I would give to teachers is um, really just lean on your gifts. Lean on those assets that you already have. You may not have it all figured out, but then again, we have first-year teachers who don't have it all figured out. We have third-year teachers who don't have it all figured out. Heck, we have 10, 11, 12, 15-year teachers who don't have it all figured out. So whatever you can bring to the table, as long as you do it with a sense of humility, with a sense of love, with a sense of respect for students, and you show them that you're invested, that's going to carry you a long way. It's not always about whether you have the strongest instructional skills. It's not always about whether you have the pedagogical framework down. Kids need to know that you care, that you're happy to be in their presence, genuinely happy to be in their presence. If they feel that, they will run through a brick wall for you. And that's what I experienced. And that really set the stage for all the work that I've been able to do for the past, at this now, what, 12, 13 years. So grateful for you doing the work that you've done and continue to do. I mean, where can people find you? So the easiest way to find me is at the Identity Talk Consulting website. That is Identity Talk for educators.com. So that's a numeral four. You can find my podcast, all my social media channels, and information about my PD services and consulting services. So everything is on the website there. Wonderful. And I have some exciting news. What I would like to do for our listeners is gift them with one of your books. So I will be incorporating a drawing into this episode. And once we find that out, then what we'll do is send them a copy of your book so that we can elevate that story. And then maybe we'll have to have you come back on when your next book is published to really enhance the marketing of it. More importantly, just be able to share with the world more of your insight and wisdom. Appreciate that, Kelly. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, Kwame, thank you so much. And for all the work you're doing and the work that you and your wife are doing, it's powerful and palpable. And thank you for making education a community. That is what is going to get us through this. Exactly. It's all about the collective. Can't do it by ourselves. All right, Kwame, thank you. Kwame, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence on the Teacher Renewed Podcast. Here are the takeaways. Number one, we all enter education with a common denominator. 
The sources of our motivation is what is different. Number two, teaching is about authenticity. Your integrity trumps everything that is happening. Number three, our students need to be aware of the society in which they live. They need to know who they are. People need a sense of who they are. As educators, our identity, our students' identity, identity work is the work we have to do as educators. Number four, to sustain in this work, we have to set personal boundaries. Education is not saviorism. This work is collective. We need to be in community with each other. To be in community, we must know ourselves. Number five, when we do this work, it must be in the best interest of our students. If it is not what our students need, we shouldn't do it. We must ask ourselves constantly, is this what my students need? And if we don't know, we have to ask. Ask them, what do you need? How can I support you? Number six, humility is critical to anti-racist work. Strip your ego, check yourself, admit when you are wrong, and know how to productively repair any harm you cause. Number seven, lean on your gifts. Lean on the assets that you already have. And number eight, sometimes the best learning is in the trenches. We are in the trenches. What can we learn?